Amen. Well, you guys can have a seat. Welcome. So glad you're here. If you have your Bibles, if you want to turn to John chapter 20, we are going to be continuing our series through the Gospel of John this morning. There's a couple things I want to say before we get going. Is First is this, with Beast Feast, there have been some amazing people that have donated some amazing prizes or given money towards that. So before you think that we're just giving away Traeger grills, Arctic coolers, Mystery Ranch backpacks because we're swimming in money, we are not. But God is faithful and he's providing for this event for one reason, that the gospel would go out and that we would reach men with the gospel. The second thing is this, we are coming towards the end of our study in John and we're going to be moving into another book. Um, after that, but before we move into that, we are going to spend, it's going to be September 12th, and I just want to make you all aware of it, uh, September 13th is the day that we launched Veneration Church last year, September 12th is the one year anniversary, and it's very fitting because we are going to be done with the Gospel of John on September 5th, which is the last week. So on September 12th, we're going to go over some things, we're going to talk about where we are financially as a church where some of the, where the money is going, but we're also going to cast vision for where we're going in the next year. We're believing God to do some incredible things in this place, and you all are a part of it. This is not my church or Tyler's or Marcus's, or it's God's church, and you're all a part of what he's doing. And so as we move into the next season as a church, I'm just praying that we're all on the same page and we charge the gates of hell together. Because God is doing amazing things, right? So John chapter 20, starting in verse 19, and I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get going. God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you that you are faithful. I thank you that you are true. I thank you that you move in ways that we cannot. God, we just want to give you praise for what you have already done in and through this church, for the lives that you've reached some of which have responded to the gospel for the first time, some of which are just are, are believers that have been grown and matured. God, whatever the spectrum, we just thank you that you're faithful. And God, this morning I pray that as this word goes out, that it would not be my words, but it would be your words. God, I pray that your spirit would fall upon this building in a powerful way, that you would do what only you can do. Holy Spirit, come and fill this place for one purpose, to lift high the name of Jesus. For it's for him that we're here, it's for him that we lift high, God, and we're asking you to do a mighty thing in this place this morning, God, and I know and I'm asking you that I need your wisdom, I need your discernment, and I need your spirit to move in this place, God, and if there's something that is not true that wants to escape, would you make it null and void and replace it with truth, God? God, I'm asking you that in this time, in this morning, in this place, that you would move for the glory of your name alone. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. So here's the deal. When I say the Holy Spirit, there are probably numerous antennas that go up in this room. Right? If we are honest, the very word, the Holy Spirit, sometimes causes some tension, sometimes causes us to think about the Holy Spirit in the way that he has been portrayed to us, whether it's from experiences, or maybe you grew up in a certain denomination, or maybe you know nothing about the Holy Spirit. And if you know nothing about the Holy Spirit, I'm very thankful that you're here, and 
you are actually in an amazing place because you're going to hear the first time who the Holy Spirit is. But there's all these antennas that go up. In fact, like, if you grew up Baptist, he is often, I'm not saying always, he is often the elephant in the room that no one talks about. Almost like this bad word, right? The Holy Spirit, well, we avoid the Holy Spirit at all costs. The Holy Spirit, we, we don't say that in here. That's the elephant in the room. Or if you're Pentecostal, he is often, maybe comes across as chaos or emotion and feeling and this big, this just whole experience that we have to feel the Holy Spirit. We have to experience the Holy Spirit. Maybe you grew up Pentecostal and that's kind of how you view him. Or maybe you grew up Catholic and he's probably maybe a little stoic. And maybe your priest at some point had mentioned the Holy Spirit. But maybe you really don't know much about the Holy Spirit. But then I say this, and this is why I've been praying into this weekend. Because I'm telling you antennas are going up in this room already. But then I say the baptism of the Holy Spirit... And some of you are probably thinking, oh, great, I knew Luke was a heretic. <laughs> right? Because maybe you have some perception of what the baptism of the Holy Spirit was, and maybe it's not even accurate. Maybe it's not even true. Or maybe you had this experience, and you're like, man, I was baptized in the Spirit in 1989, and whew, it was an amazing experience, right? Whatever it may be, but... Here's my prayer. Here's the reality. Most people view the Holy Spirit based on what someone has told them about him or based on their experience. And they relate baptism of the Holy Spirit often to chaos in tongues. Often that's how the baptism of the Holy Spirit is conveyed, is it's all about tongues and it's all about prophecy and it's all about chaos. And that's just simply not true. That's not what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is. See, most of us maybe have never really opened the Bible and said, God, what do you say about the Holy Spirit? How does he work? How does he move? And I'm going to tell you right now that there's, in this week's preparation for this message, there has been much, very much mental calisthenics. My mind is tired because it's like, whoa. What does the Bible say about the Holy Spirit, who he is, and how he works? Because I don't know about you, but we're only tackling four verses this morning, and two of them want to make my mind explode. Just being honest. Because at face value, it's like this, I don't understand. I don't really know what's going on here. But here's my prayer this morning, that as we open the word, as we see what Jesus has said, that we would leave this place having a full understanding of who the Holy Spirit is, how he works, and why he works. And I will say this before we go. The reason he works is always and only for the glorification and the elevation of the name of Jesus so that all men might know who he is. It's not chaos. It's not craziness. He moves in order. He moves specifically to magnify the name of Jesus. Verse 19, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. 
Right Last week, we talked about the resurrection and how Jesus literally walked out of the tomb. He left his grave clothes behind, and now the disciples are in this room, and they've locked themselves in a room because they were associated with Jesus, and so many of the Jews were going to come after them. And here comes Jesus, you know, like a normal day, uh, just walks through a locked door, just walks through a wall and appears pretty normal, right? He had left his grave clothes behind in the same way. He just left them, and now he enters this room with his disciples without even knocking. There was no like, hey, guys, will you let me in? He just appears. Just a normal day with Jesus. Verse 20, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. We know from Luke chapter 24 that Jesus walks in and he says, man, feel my, look at my hands, feel my side. I am not a spirit. I am Jesus, the risen king. I am not some ghost that just walked into the room. And he said in Luke 24, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Jesus is saying, I love you so much that I could have risen from the grave and went straight back to the Father, but I wanted to come and reveal myself to you to show you that I am here, to show you that I defeated death, that I defeated sin, and then I will ascend to the Father, but this is me, guys. This is not some Ghostbuster thing. This is not some weird spirit thing. This is me, Jesus, the King of heaven in the flesh. I was dead, but now I am alive. Verse 21. Oh, before I go on, this word glad, I don't think it's, this is kind of a weak interpretation. I don't think when the disciples are hiding in a room for fear of the Jews and Jesus shows up, they're like, oh man, I was very glad that he showed up. <laughs> no, like this sense of like relief. The word is actually more rejoice, like they were ecstatic that the God who went to the grave and was killed was back with them and he was alive. It was much more than this little just being glad. Jesus was alive. And he said this, Jesus said to them, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Sending them where? To bring the good news to Everyone. That's where he's sending, that's where Jesus is sending his disciples to go and proclaim what he had just done. And then it says this, and this is where it gets very, very mind-bending. And when he said this, he, being Jesus, breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Verse 23, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, see, the easy thing to do would be, man, I could make a great sermon about Jesus. When he comes, he brings peace. How he walks through walls and he shows his hands in his side. Be quite easy to talk about that and skip over these last two verses. Because if I'm going to be honest, yes, I went to seminary, but this is not easy to understand. Jesus says here in the ESV that if you forgive the sins of many, they're forgiven. But if you withhold it, forgiveness, it is withheld. But he also says receive the Holy Spirit. If you know anything about Acts and probably what you've taught, been taught is the Holy Spirit fell for the first time at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. 
That's when Jesus, post-ascension, sent the Spirit, as we're going to see, and it fell upon the disciples, the apostles. But here Jesus is saying that he breathed on them in that moment, and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. And this word receive literally means in that moment, receive in that moment, the Spirit has come. So what in the heck is going on? It's very interesting that this is the only place in the New Testament this word breathe is used. The same word is used in Hebrews in Genesis chapter 2-7 when God said, Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust, the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. It's very interesting. The only time it's used in the New Testament is here, and it's used in Genesis. In Genesis, it was used to breathe life into man for the very first time. In John, Jesus is saying he breathed into his disciples the Holy Spirit, which granted them and gave them life spiritually for the very first time. Because if the Holy Spirit had not come, they could not accomplish the task of bringing the gospel to all those who he has sent. And I just want to say this as we get into this. I know this is going to be a heavy week, trust me. But if you'll just hang with me as we're going to see some things, this is my goal. That it would be not my, not what I want, not what I think, but the word, what the Word of God actually says about the Holy Spirit and how He works. My opinion has, it doesn't matter, guys. My opinion does not matter. What matters is this. And so we're going to walk through this and see what God says about it, not me. <clears throat> okay, here we go. Are you ready? Buckle your seatbelts. This has been my prayer. God, there is so much information. How do I make it concise and clear and true? Because like I said, my opinion doesn't matter. Turn with me to Luke 24. 44 through 49. This is Luke's account of this situation. It says this, 44, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms might be fulfilled. Don't miss this. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. We're going to come back to this. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses to these, of these things. And then he says this, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. That's what we just saw here when Jesus breathed upon his disciples and gave them the Holy Spirit. When he said, receive the Holy Spirit, he said, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. But then he says this. It's a very important word. It's a three-letter word. It's very short. It's very simple, but it's very important. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So I want us to see something. Right here, he says, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. I believe that this is where he breathed upon them, the disciples, with the Holy Spirit for the first time. We see in 1 Corinthians 2.14, it says this, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. 
And then it says this, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. See, according to Paul, the only way to understand the word of God is through the spirit of God. It's the only way to interpret scripture in the way that God intended it to be. It's spiritual, guys. Everything is spiritual in this world. We are fighting a spiritual battle. It's not against flesh and blood. Paul is saying that the only way to understand the scripture is through the power of the Holy Spirit. Then 46 and 47, he, he goes on to say that it was written what Jesus had done. Why was he sending the Holy Spirit for this reason? To empower them to confirm and proclaim the message of the gospel. If Jesus did not open their minds to understand the scripture, why Jesus said he was coming the whole time, and then when he fulfilled it and where he was going, they had nothing to offer. But he granted them, he breathed on them the Holy Spirit to confirm and proclaim the message of the gospel. And then verse 48, to, um, you should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, in Jerusalem first and then out Judea. So here's what we're seeing. And by the way, you are free to disagree. I just want to preface this with this message. I'm not saying I'm the expert on this. I'm just saying this is what I have seen in the scriptures as we move forward. And if you disagree, that's fine. Just show me biblically why you disagree, and we'll have a conversation. I'm not here trying to brainwash you with some information. I'm just trying to reveal what Jesus is saying because it's very confusing when he said they received the Holy Spirit. But see, this helps us understand what Jesus is saying in John 10, or 20, 23, which is back here, what we saw earlier, if you want to jump back to John 20, where he says this, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. What in the heck is this saying? If you look at it just in the Greek, it reads this way. Whoever's sins you remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever you retain, they are retained. What this passage cannot be saying is that we have the ability to forgive sins or withhold forgiveness of sins in the sense of the reason Jesus came. Only Jesus can forgive sins. We don't have the ability to do that. We can forgive one another, but that's not what this is saying. Jesus is talking about the forgiveness of sins. We don't have that ability. Jesus does. In Mark 2, we see this is proven as a paralytic is lowered from the roof, and Jesus says to him, son, your sins are forgiven. And the scribes hated it and said, who can forgive sins but God? And Jesus says later, the son of man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. But then we also see in Hebrews 9, 22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The blood that was shed was Jesus and Jesus alone. See, nowhere in Scripture is there support for a man being able to forgive the sins of man. Jesus did not give the apostles the inherent right to forgive sins, but the privilege to convey the message of forgiveness. See, ministers of the gospel cannot forgive sins, but simply proclaim how sins are forgiven by the blood of Jesus. And we can do that through the power of the Holy Spirit. Before
Oh, my batteries are dying. I put brand new ones in. Does anyone have batteries? I had four bars when I... What I'm saying is false, or the enemy's trying to shut it down. So I don't know which one. <laughs> so I guess when I get to heaven one day, I'll stand before God, and if I'm off, man, I'm always open for correction. But one of the reasons the batteries died. So if we look at this text, I just want to break this apart a little bit on what it says in the Greek as far as syntax, which I'm not getting into it because I know, but it's, it's important when we're interpreting Scripture, how the original language was written. So I just want to say this. In this text, it says, if you forgive, it uses, and this is going to mean nothing to you, but that's okay, this part, the aorist active subjunctive tense. What this means in the aorist tense is that the event occurred at some point in time. This event of forgiveness occurred at some point in time. The second time Jesus uses forgive, he uses the perfect passive indicative tense, which means this that something happened and it has an ongoing effect. So at some point, sins were forgiven, but then that forgiveness of sin has an ongoing effect. The passive means this, God forgave them. You can't see this in the English text, but the subject of this verse is actually God as it's referring back to the Father. So to interpret this text is to say, well, I have the power to forgive sins. Bruce Almighty, I'm God himself. <laughs> it's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I have forgiven sins. I have atoned for sin. Once it's been paid, it's been paid, and it's ongoing until the day that you return back home to me. See, if you combine the perfect and the passive, it's the message that God has forgiven them and they are in the state of continuing forgiveness. And he sent the Spirit to empower the disciples, to empower the apostles to proclaim this message starting in Jerusalem to the rest of the world. The number one role of the Holy Spirit is always to magnify and lift high the name of Jesus. One commentator puts it this way. Jesus was not giving the apostles divine authority. Jesus was allowing them to help others know that their sins were forgiven if in fact they trusted in Jesus. The apostles were stating something that had already occurred. The Greek text makes this very clear. So here's where we're going. Here's the final question in this passage before we apply it and see really what this is all saying in regards to the Spirit. What is meant by he breathed on them and they received the Holy Spirit? Because that's really where all this starts. In verse 22, it says, Jesus breathed on them, received the Holy Spirit, Jesus said. See, John records that Jesus breathed the Holy Spirit into them. Luke records in Acts that the baptism of the Holy Spirit happened at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. So what is it? <laughs> When did the Spirit come? Did he not? Did, was this, some people will interpret this text as Jesus was basically saying, I'm telling you of the Spirit that is coming, which would happen in Acts chapter 2. 
That argument's not good if you actually look at this in the Greek and you actually look at what this word received means. See, I believe there's two different movements of the Holy Spirit and they accomplish different purposes. Like I said, I preface this, this is my belief. There are other people that believe this too from scripture, but here they are. And it makes sense, it helps us make sense of this text. One is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the believer at conversion. And two is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Listen, the in, which is the empowerment of the Spirit for a specific Christ-exalting task at a specific time. That is the key. Don't miss it as we move forward. It's a Christ-exalting extraordinary power that God wants to accomplish at a specific time. It has nothing to do with you or me. It's God chooses to move in a way that exalts and lifts high the name of his son. So here we go. Pray for me, please. Receiving the spirit at conversion, we see in 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 13, Paul says this. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For if one, for in one spirit we were all baptized into the body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and were all made to drink of one spirit. Romans 8, 9 said this, tells us that the spirit dwells in us. But then there's the empowerment of the spirit, and we see this in Luke chapter 24, verse 49, where... It says, and behold, and don't miss this, I am sending, he says. This is in the present, te present tense in the Greek, which means currently sending or sending now. So Jesus is saying to the apostles, saying to the disciples, I am sending now the Holy Spirit, the promise that my Father, the promise of my Father upon you. What was the promise of his Father? We saw earlier that when Jesus, after he defeated death, his father was going to send a helper. This helper was the Holy Spirit. But Luke is saying, or Jesus is saying here, that he is now sending it, currently sending it. And then he says this, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. See, I think this sending of the Spirit occurred when Jesus breathed upon his disciples and said, receive the Holy Spirit. So here's what we're going to do. I want to look at a few passages in Acts. I know this is going to be a lot of scripture, but I, it needs to happen so that you know that this is not my random weirdness. That this is what God says about this topic. And we have this for the screen, I believe, Acts chapter 8, verses 9 through 17. If you have your Bibles, you can open to that. And I promise you we're going to tie this all up in the end. It says this. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him. But... The least, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with magic. He was a magician. He amazed them with his magic tricks is essentially what it's saying. But then don't miss this, verse 12. But when they believed, Philip 
as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized with water, is what this is saying. So they heard from Philip the gospel, they believed upon the gospel, and then they were baptized with water, both men and women. Verse 13, even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. After being submerged in water, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. And then it says this, now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them to Peter and John, verse 15, who came down and prayed for them, what? That they might receive the Holy Spirit. Why? For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. What Paul is saying is the gospel was preached, Simon believed, Simon was baptized, but he had not yet received the Holy Spirit. But if we look at Mark chapter 16, Jesus said, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. So if that's the case, this text makes no sense because Jesus said all you need to do is believe he says believe be baptized and you're saved we know that the spirit is indwelled with the Holy Spirit upon conversion but Paul is saying that they had not yet received the spirit post conversion what is going on well, I'm glad you asked because it's gonna make sense See, after, he, after they received salvation, they were born again. They have the Holy Spirit living inside of them. And then after this, the word gets back to Jerusalem. They're like, man, these guys were saved, but I mean, they haven't received the Holy Spirit. So what is going on? See, if getting saved and getting baptized with the Holy Spirit are the same event, this passage does not make sense because of how it's written. I mean, you saw it just like me. Let's look one more place in Acts chapter 19, 1 through 7. And it happened that while Apollos was, in, was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. And then verse 5, on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So upon hearing this, they realized that their faith was not in Jesus, it was actually in John. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, he comes and, and they get saved, because on hearing this, they were baptized. You you're not baptized until you believe. And then it says this, and when Paul laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. So here we go again. We see that, that if some of these disciples had already received the Spirit upon conversion, what is this baptism of the Holy Spirit? Because Paul uses completely different language when he talks about it. 
He, he uses different language, and it's important for us to understand why, because we're going to see what it is and what it is not. Because it has been greatly counterfeited, which strips it of its power. Acts chapter 2, 1 through 4. I told you there's a lot of scripture, but that's all right, because God's saying it, not me. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they, who is they, the disciples and the apostles who had previously been with Jesus, who Jesus said he breathed on them and they received the Holy Spirit, were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared on them and rested on each one of them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem the Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, but don't miss this, because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. What was the purpose of each of them hearing them speak in their own language, that they would understand the gospel and know how to be saved? That's the purpose of it. See, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, falls upon men and women, boys and girls, at different times so that they might know who Jesus is. Sometimes we view tongues as this babbling madness. That's not a baptism of the Holy Spirit. I'm sorry, it's not. It's chaos. God is a God of order. And if it's not lifting high the name of Jesus, it is not of the Spirit. Plain and simple, there's no discussion for that. We can have the discussion, but you will lose. Because <laughs> you can't prove it to me anywhere in Scripture that it's outside of that realm. See, the Spirit had fallen on these men whom, according to Jesus, had already received the Spirit. And here's the deal before we apply it. John 20 through 22, when Jesus says receive here, it's in the aorist tense, which is expressing a past action. So if Jesus had not given the Spirit until Pentecost, why in the Greek, when he said receive the Spirit, is it in the aorist tense, past action, it has already been done? It can't be the same thing. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit at conversion cannot be the same thing as baptism of the Holy Spirit for specific times. It just can't. It doesn't make sense. But so often we lump it all into one thing. In fact, some Pentecostal camps say, well, you ain't saved until you've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. Until you speak in tongues, you ain't saved. Uh, not biblical, not true. But there is a thing, Paul talks about it all over, Jesus, this baptism of the Holy Spirit. So why, what is it and why does it happen? Why did they receive the Holy Spirit? So that they might understand Luke 24 and proclaim Luke 24 and John 20, how sins are being forgiven the finished work of Jesus. See, this is the main work of the Holy Spirit of God. This is why Jesus is sending them out to proclaim the message of the gospel. The role of the Holy Spirit is to magnify and lift high the name of Jesus so that everything he does is directed to that purpose. So here's the question. If the indwelling of the Holy Spirit upon conversion and the baptism of the Holy Spirit post-conversion are different, what is the difference and what is his function in each? 
The first thing that we see is this. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is your seal guaranteeing the promises of God upon conversion. It's beautiful. 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Ephesians 1.13-14, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is what? The guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. See, once again, when you heard the word of truth, when you believed, then you were sealed and you were given the Holy Spirit as a seal, as a guarantee for what is to come. The Spirit of God is a guarantee of the promises of God. 1 Corinthians 1, 20 through 22 says this, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes with us, or establishes us with you in Christ, and has anointed us. And then he says this, And who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Upon conversion, God sends the Holy Spirit to seal you. No one can snatch you, no one can steal you. He proves that salvation is not based upon us. See, if you could lose your salvation, it would be dependent upon you, which it's not. And God would not guarantee your inheritance because you and I would fail. God cannot guarantee something he cannot follow up on. So he is saying that upon salvation, he sends the Holy Spirit to seal you. You are bought. You are, you are sealed by the blood of Jesus, and no one, not even the enemy, can snatch you from his hand. It's amazing. The second thing we see is this. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is the receiving, and don't miss this, of extraordinary power for what? Christ-exalting ministry. See, Luke describes the first baptism of the Holy Spirit as being filled in Acts 2.4, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues of the Spirit, gave them utterance. Who was they? The disciples, some of the apostles that Jesus had previously granted the Spirit to. See, all throughout the book of Acts, the term filled with the Holy Spirit is recurrent, repeated experience in the believer's life and not just a one-time experience. Paul is filled in Acts chapter 13 when he confronts a magician who is seeking to turn a man away from the faith. So here's this magician. He's seeking to turn this man away from the gospel of Christ. Paul filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit falls upon Paul to accomplish the mission of exalting Jesus to this man so that he might be saved. Acts 13, 9 through 12 says, but Paul, who was called also Paul, filled... Saul, who was called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord, Paul says? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand 
And then it says this, then the proconsul believed the man who was trying to be lured away when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Why did the Holy Spirit come upon Paul with power? So that this man might know who the king is, who Jesus is, that he might be saved. Peter is filled in Acts 4. We see it was a normal day, right? They're walking around and Peter and John are like, oh, there's this crippled man. In the name of Jesus, get up and rise and walk. And the man starts walking around and all of a sudden all the religious leaders, they're all after Peter because Peter had just done this in the name of the Lord Jesus. So they bring him before basically the supreme court of the land and he's standing on trial. And scripture says that as he's standing there, then Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and said to them, and he goes into this whole long dialogue on how like basically get out of the way. This was not his own strength. This was not his own merit. The Spirit fell upon him for the purpose of exalting Jesus for the sake of the gospel. It was a power that was infused from on high. See, the Spirit falls upon him so that he might exalt and lift high the name of Jesus. And I want you to see this at the end. He says this in verse 13 of Acts 4. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished in what they recognized that they had been with Jesus. And I want to say this. You will never be bold for Jesus if you have never been with Jesus. We can't be bold for the gospel if we've never been with him, if we don't know him. The world is looking for hope. The world is looking for something that it cannot get on its own. And if we as the church are not spending time in the word and not just taking what we've learned in Sunday school and making that our belief because that's just what it's always been, if we haven't been with Jesus, how do we reach a world that is without Jesus? We will never be bold for him if we have never been with him. Are you with him? Are you spending time with him, getting to know him? Because he wants to unleash his spirit with power so that the lost might be found. That's why he came. See, the problem is this as we wrap up. The baptism of the Holy Spirit has been counterfeited in much of what the Pentecostal realm to be something that it's not. It's been counterfeited. It's been stolen. And therefore, the baptism of the Holy Spirit has become a bad word, especially in some more conservative and reformed camps. It shouldn't be. It's biblical. But what we have done is we have counterfeited it with something that is false, with something that is of the enemy, with something that causes great distraction, with something that brings all attention and strips it from God and places it on man. If the attention from whatever you view as the baptism of the Holy Spirit or your gifts, if it draws attention to you, it's not of the Holy Spirit. It can't be. The Holy Spirit will always testify to Jesus. See, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is such an amazing thing. It's the Spirit coming upon a believer. This is the summary of it. It's the Spirit coming upon a believer with extraordinary power at a specific time in a specific place to magnify the work of Jesus. 
It's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It does not magnify, if it does not magnify the name of Jesus or bring clarity to the work of Christ with power, then it is not the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but rather a counterfeit of the enemy. Babbling chants and barking like dogs is not baptism of the Holy Spirit. A faith driven by emotion is not baptism of the Holy Spirit. Taking the attention off of God and placing it on man is not baptism of the Holy Spirit. Baptism of the Holy Spirit is God filling a believer or coming upon a believer with extraordinary power to reveal the work of Christ. That's the power of the Spirit. And if you think and if I think that we can reach this place apart from the power of the Spirit, we are greatly deceived and greatly mistaken. We need the Holy Spirit. He is not a bad word. He is not a cootie. He is not all of this stuff. He is power, and we cease to understand him. I wish I understood him more. But I will guarantee you this, we are sunk without the power of the Holy Spirit moving in the hearts of men, women, boys, and girls. If he doesn't move, close the doors, because he is not a bad word. He's the power of God that magnifies the Son of God so that men and women, boys and girls, might be saved. It's amazing, actually. And I know we don't have time to go in-depth into all this, and that's been my fear is I don't have enough time to do it because I'm already out of time, so I'm going to wrap it up. But the problem, however, is that this is the problem often, is that tongues and prophecy have become the definition of baptism in the Holy Spirit, and it is simply not true. I am not a cessationist. I do not believe that the gifts ceased, but I do believe that much of what we hear as tongues in prophecy is actually not tongues in prophecy at all. I mean, who am I to say that all the gifts ceased? I'm not God. God is the creator of all that we see. Of course they can exist still. But but every time we see tongues in Scripture, it's always the interpretation of the gospel into a language so that someone can understand But we have labeled tongues and prophecy as baptism of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we have thrown out baptism of the Holy Spirit, and I think we're missing the power of God. Because it's been counterfeited. See, I have never spoken in tongues, and I may not ever. And if you're in this room and you think, oh, well, Luke must not be saved because he he hasn't been baptized with the Spirit. He hasn't spoken in tongues. Well, you can take that up with God, but I believe that I'm saved. And I have never spoken in tongues, and I may never speak in tongues. And that's A-OK. Because tongues is not the manifestation of the power, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the proclamation of the gospel and seeing men and women, boys and girls come to faith is every single time. But I've had moments where the Spirit came upon me for the proclamation of the gospel in power, and it was not my own. I was in Missoula one time preaching the gospel or not Missoula, sorry, I meant my story. This one was in Seattle. We were doing street ministry, and like, <clears throat> there was this group of guys, it was a gang, rough, rough, rough-looking guys in downtown Seattle. And God said, go preach the gospel. And it's amazing the boldness that you get when you actually obey the voice of God. <laughs> so I step into this circle. I've never, I mean, it was, it was amazing. Like, I just felt the power of God fall upon that place, and I walk into the circle, and I say the name of Jesus, and this one man looks at me, and he starts shaking convulsively, and out of his mouth comes this antifreeze green-looking liquid, and he spews it all over the pavement. 
What had happened is that in the spiritual realm, there are angels and demons. They are fighting for the souls of man. But the Spirit of God came upon me in that moment to come and to preach the gospel to those who are hurting, and God did what only he could do, and it was a demonstration of his power and not my own. That is a baptism of the Holy Spirit. In that moment, God equips you for something that is greater than yourself so that his power might be revealed. That's what it is. It wasn't babbling chants or prophecies that you say are going to come true and they don't come true. The Bible is very clear. If you say a prophecy and doesn't come true, you're a false prophet. Very clear. <laughs> it's a really easy gauge. See, we as the church should be asking God to fall upon us to proclaim the gospel with extraordinary power, for this reveals the power of God, not the power of man. So as we wrap up, if Jenna and Marcus want to come up, if we want to see God do incredible things in this valley, we must not quench the spirit. Sometimes we quench the spirit by avoiding the spirit because we, we don't know what he is. Listen to what 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 through 21 says. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test, but test everything. Like I said, test. If it doesn't come true, a false prophet. <laughs> Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. So we cannot quench the spirit. We must walk. We must be with Jesus. Otherwise, the spirit will be quenched. But we also must not do this, and we also must not misrepresent the spirit, which occurs more often than we think. See, Christians often try to make the spirit who we want him to be. This not only quenches the work of the spirit, but pushes non-Christians away as it should. If we're in a place amongst non-believers, and all of a sudden we think we have a word from the Lord or whatever, or whatever happens in prophecy or tongues or and they're like that is just weird and it's not exalting jesus it's not of god see we often misrepresent the spirit the spirit of god is powerful and all sufficient and we must have him we need him we are sunk without him but because of all the stuff that goes around and all the misrepresentations we often box him in a box of this is baptism of the holy spirit and if that's baptism of the holy spirit i want nothing to do with it because guess what neither do i but a baptism of the holy spirit as we see in scripture is the falling of the spirit of god upon a man or a woman or a boy or a girl to proclaim the news of the gospel that's why jesus sent his disciples that's why he gave them his spirit was to send them out to preach the gospel if that is happening in this place look out gates of hell because addictions are going to be stolen Hurt is going to be gone because Jesus himself is on the throne and he is moving with power and he is sending his spirit to explode the gospel across this place. And if it does not bring glory to him, it is not of him. But would we not misrepresent the Spirit? Would we not miss what the Spirit is wanting to do because we're afraid of Him like we are a ghost? 
open the word, see what the word says about the spirit of God. And if God, when God falls on a people, it is not chaos. It is order and it is power and the lost are saved and the church is matured and that's demonstration of the spirit of God. I'm praying that God would fall upon this place. I'm praying that he would fall upon this room, fall upon you and me to equip us for one reason, that the gospel would go forth with power. See, for us, we don't want to quench the spirit. We don't want to misrepresent the spirit. We're saying, God, we're going to proclaim Jesus to as many as will hear, saying, Holy Spirit, do in and through us as you please. Magnify the name of Jesus, and whatever you do, do it. Do whatever you want. We'll do our thing, but beyond that, it's out of our control. It's your thing. See, when the Holy Spirit is moving, there is peace and power, and nothing can compare. When Jesus walked into the room and saw his disciples, he said, peace be with you. Jesus, the King of glory, is the Prince of Peace. The Spirit of God is the power of God. When the two mix, it's unreal what's about to happen. Those who have no peace are given peace. The Spirit of God moves with power to proclaim the name of Jesus, and the church advances on mission, and nothing can stop it. So in this place, would you join me in not being weird about the Holy Spirit, but trusting that the Holy Spirit fills believers at conversion, but then he also demonstrates his power at certain times, falls upon people at different times to accomplish a task that we cannot do on our own merit or strength nor in our flesh. Why? Because it's for his glory and not ours. God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for what you have done, God. I know for me there was great fear coming into this message because as you're trying to build momentum for the sake of the gospel, the Holy Spirit, often people get weird about the Holy Spirit. And there may be someone in this room that says, man, I'm out. But God, here's my prayer that right now, by the power of your spirit, that you would intercept that lie. And that if I'm off, God, that you would void it or that it would be revealed through your word, God. But we are asking you in this place, God, to move with power. That your spirit would fall upon this place, God, that it would fall upon this valley for one reason, to lift high the name of Jesus. So God, we are believing you to move. God, we are believing you to do the impossible as you have already done. God, we've seen miracles in this church in the short time that we've been here. I remember before we launched, we were in a little room back here in Stillwater with 10 people praying for what you might do. And 10 months later, look at what you're doing. That is only the power of God. That's only the power of the Holy Spirit. So God, help us to lean in, help us to understand you, help us to lean into who you are so that we might proclaim the gospel with power to any and all who will hear. Holy Spirit, have your way in this place. Soften hearts, take hearts of stone and give them hearts of flesh. And would we lean into you and trust you on your strength, trust you on your power, God, to do the things that only you can do. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.